Welcome to another Infographic Instant with Brian Michael. In this episode, we'll be looking at Funders of Last Resort, the legal issues involved in using central bank balance sheets to bolster economic growth. Before we begin, we should note that the opinions expressed in this presentation are only my own and not necessarily those even of co-authors who might have written different sections of the paper. The question that we'll be looking at is what effect would central bank direct purchases of private sector securities have on productive investment and thus output? And the answer is that it depends on whether a country has what we would consider as good conditions. Uh, as you know, most papers look at the effects of monetary policy through money markets, namely through changes in credits or interest rates. Our question, however, focuses only on the direct effect, namely the actual purchase of those securities and the increase in demand that that has, and therefore any knock-on effects, not only in terms of prices, returns, but also risk. When we talk about the central bank purchase of securities, we're talking not only about outright purchases, such as those conducted by the European Central Bank, but also the taking of collateral. Those of you familiar with new institutional economics will be comfortable with the fact that a collateral is simply a contingent contract or a contingent purchase of part of the property rights over a particular asset. And instead of trying to explain this every time we use the word purchase, we simply advise at the beginning of this presentation that any purchase refers to the central bank's quote-unquote handling of private sector securities. The term control for we use in rather a standard way in the social sciences. Specifically in this paper, we control for monetary market effects. We control for the types of variables that other authors are interested in looking at as monetary policy diffuses through the monetary markets and the wider economy. So to that extent, the variables that other authors actually are interested in, we're trying to remove from our analysis in order to look at the direct effects. And the graphic you see in front of you basically summarizes the main findings of the paper. The graphic shows the change in central bank private asset purchases, as we've defined them previously, and changes in capital formation, which we know as investment. And when we look at these two variables over time for a range of countries, we see four ways that the central bank purchase of these private securities can affect investment. The first way, of course, is as a lender of last resort, namely that central banks can provide resources, not just by improving overall credit markets, but actually directing specific credit to specific companies when it's needed, which is a heresy during the time of this presentation. We find that in most countries, unsurprisingly, there's a negative relationship between these purchases and investment, reflecting broader economic and money market conditions. We also find that there is a confusing relationship which we call the sloth effect. The sloth effect basically describes a situation when companies get more money but invest less. And 
probably unsatisfyingly to listeners, we don't try and explain why this sloth effects occurred. And to that end, we try and find conditions or certain types of jurisdictions which would benefit more from this type of lender of last resort rather than experience these kinds of negative effects. Let's look first at the new reality of central banks' balance sheets. As we know from magazines like The Economist and newspapers like The Financial Times, central bank balance sheets have become very large. And in particular, four central banks hold almost one-third of the value of the world's GDP in these securities. The U.S. Federal Reserve, which we'll call the Fed, European Central Bank, which I'll often refer to as the ECB, the People's Bank of China, which is a very special case, which we touch on only marginally in the presentation, and the Bank of Japan, which probably has the longest and the most interesting history, except for China, of purchasing these private sector assets. And so we see not only that the size of these purchases is very large, but also the concentration in particular markets has been extremely pronounced. Therefore, we are in a position to see some of the knock-on effects in securities markets and ultimately in investment. In figure 4.B, we look at the composition of these central bank balance sheets citing other academics. This infographic particularly looks at the balance of the central bank holding vis-a-vis -vis private versus government assets, domestic versus foreign assets. How have central banks responded before, during, and after the crisis buying the securities they think would help solve the crisis and promote economic growth? Unsurprisingly, most of the governments in most of these rich jurisdictions that we've reviewed tended to load up on government securities, as is conventional wisdom in central banking. We tend to see all three of the large central banks, the European Central Bank, the Bank of England, the US Fed, we don't show it here, but also the Bank of Japan, buying more private sector assets. And we know relatively little about the economics and the law of these purchases only because this type of approach has been taboo over the last decade or so. Now, why should we care about central bank purchases of private securities? Naturally, if banks were allocating capital sufficiently, we wouldn't see large shortfalls in investment, particularly across the areas affected by the financial crisis. Figure 22A shows other scholars' estimates of investment shortfalls euro-wide as well as in several prominent European countries. We see investment shortfalls as a percent of GDP coming in up to five, possibly more, percent of GDP, suggesting that there is absolutely a role for some kind of funder if banks are not stepping up to provide these kinds of funds. To the extent that central banks buying private securities is taboo, they in some ways become the funder of last resort. They could serve as that institution which provides money when no other institution will provide money at a time where these companies have positive net present value investment opportunities. In other words, they have investments that need money and that will pay off in the future. 
most of the studies that we've analyzed during the course of this paper show that uh, central bank purchases of private assets actually help to crowd in private investment. Figure 22b looks at bond issuances of non-financial corporates as one attempt to look at the way that private sector investment has responded, even according to announcements of these purchases of private securities, we see the private decisions of companies deciding to issue bonds correlating with ECB decisions to engage in their own purchases. More importantly, we see that unconventional monetary policy actually has larger effects than traditional monetary policy alone. The infographic we see in front of us looks at the way that unconventional monetary policy has increased interest rates, returns, and so forth in the US and the UK. This unconventional monetary policy or buying securities and providing forward guidance can increase returns on equities, increase overall returns on debt. We see that in the case of the UK, there was a slight decrease in equities returns for reasons which we'll probably get back to later. And continuing on this theme of investment constraints, not only have countries in crisis have been affected by this shortfall of investment, investment, but so have companies worldwide. The figure we see in front of us now looks at the percent of companies reporting funding as a constraint, as well as these companies' use of banks. In countries of all income levels, there are certainly companies that could use more funding, that don't have access to enough funding, therefore again suggesting the potential role of a funder, or as we call it, a funder of last resort. And interestingly enough, we see that even in high-income countries, there isn't necessarily enough capital in order for companies to make the investment projects that they want, suggesting that there's some kind of distortion in capital markets, which a very large provider of capital like a central bank might be able to help overcome. Now, in order to know whether the central bank money will actually help investment, we need to see if there's a correlation between these companies getting money and making investments. In this figure, we look at investment to GDP ratios, and we look at company surveys looking at whether getting money is a big problem, getting money is moderately difficult, or not difficult at all. For companies that have a lot of problems getting money, they tend to use banks for a lot of their finance. We know about the increasing importance of shadow banking, as we discussed in the paper, and shadow banking serving as a surrogate for conventional financing. We also talk about the risks and inherent problems in these ballooning shadow banking markets. Thus, to the extent that a funder of last resort as a central bank can provide some of this funding in an official capacity rather than through central banks, we see that it might play a very positive role not only in promoting investment but also economic stability. So we've looked at some of the reasons for central banks serving as a funder of last resort. What do previous studies tell us about the relationship between central bank unconventional monetary policy such as buying securities and actual investment? 
Figure 13 shows what we call the mother of all studies because they provide vector autoregressions, simulations over time of different monetary policies and their effects on different variables such as real GDP, consumer prices, long-run interest rates, and so forth for several of the countries that these authors look at. We notice two trends in these data. First, overall unconventional monetary policy has certainly helped economic growth and has actually helped to increase equity prices, unsurprisingly. But secondly, some of the error bands in these studies are so large as to be practically meaningless. So if we look at these cases in Canada, this case from the UK, even these two cases from the US, we see that the error bands basically cover the entire graph, suggesting that this simulation doesn't really tell us a whole lot about what's going on. Nevertheless, as we show in some of the other infographics, we are pretty confident that there is a positive relationship between unconventional monetary policy, such as through the purchase of public and private securities, and output. We're much less certain about that role in investment. We now show several infographics where we see investment responding to these central bank policies, mostly by reducing risk and improving profits, thereby encouraging private investors to go into markets they might not typically go into. Figure 16a shows the contribution to investment growth from various factors in the jurisdictions you see in front of you. As a motivator for investment growth in places like Canada, Japan, we see that decreases in uncertainty have absolutely fueled increased demand for investment in some of these jurisdictions. Interestingly, credit growth has not been a major driver, except in places like Italy, negatively unsurprisingly in the US, and excess equity returns have helped to provide a lot of impetus for a lot of this investment. That suggests that even if central banks are not serving as funders of last resort in sopping up investments that others won't take on, they certainly help to encourage private investors to come into these markets because they end up taking less risk and expecting to get out at higher prices. And not only do we see this effect over different countries, but we also see this effect in the US, specifically in response to its own quantitative easing program. The figure in front of us shows the uh, risk premia for different maturities of securities. These risk premia have fallen post-QE, definitely suggesting that central bank policy is able to change incentives facing private investors. So what do we actually know about the way that these higher equity prices encourage investment or not? It seems like a no-brainer that when stock prices and bond returns are going up, investors are going to want to buy those securities. And at first glance, we see there's actually a negative correlation between those two variables. Namely, if we just plot investment in private sector assets in different companies and equity returns from those countries, we see a negative correlation. However, when we control for different variables, as we discuss in the paper, naturally we see a positive relationship. 
and to some extent the data dispel the notion that all central banks around the world have been focusing their monetary policy and specifically their unconventional monetary policy on financing government deficits or buying government instruments. This infographic shows central bank portfolio orientation where higher bars mean that there's more of an orientation toward the purchase of private sector assets and what we see is that in some countries central banks have been far more private sector friendly than the popular media gives them credit for. We hear a lot about Japan, we hear about the EU, but judging from these data, we see that other economies, Poland, Mexico, Bulgaria, Turkey, assuming that we read the study correctly, they have been acquiring private sector assets much more than maybe a conventional theory of monetary policy might allow for. Similarly, when we look at the change in private assets to government assets, we see that some jurisdictions have been changing their portfolio allocations in order to target private sector asset prices and thus hopefully investment more. If we've read this study correctly, the data were rather hard to interpret. We see some countries such as Malaysia, Switzerland, Philippines, South Africa, we see them exhibiting large changes in the composition of their asset ratios relative to the amount of government paper they used to hold. Even looking at the role of the Federal Reserve during the crisis, we see that at that time, controversially, the Federal Reserve had served as a funder of last resort for small businesses and certain types of equipment acquisition. Thus, it's not the case that central banks have completely stayed out of this type of funding private sector assets or even serving as funders of last resort. And continuing with this theme of needing a central bank as a lender of last resort and investment, we see here in figure 29 the difference between potential and actual growth in the EU. One argument might be that the EU has not needed extra credit because there's been so much spare capacity in the system, and therefore any extra funding would simply have been unabsorbed because there wasn't enough demand. But what we see from this infographic is that there wasn't necessarily a spare capacity all through this time period. Therefore, it's simply not true that when there's a financial crisis or indeed any misallocation of money, for lack of a better term, the story is largely a demand side story rather than a supply side story. Naturally, as good economists, we use econometrics in order to try and figure out what the relationships are in our model. Again, reminding that unlike most studies, we're not looking for the way central bank unconventional monetary policy affects monetary markets. We're doing just the opposite. We're trying to control, we're trying to weed out those effects in order to figure out what the direct effects of central bank acquisition of these assets are.
As you see in most uh, econometric papers, they run several types of regressions, several columns, right, where they're testing different theories. The theories that we look at are investment based on overall aggregate demand, investment based on what people have done before, investment based on money and credit available in general, and investment based on central bank acumen, how good, for lack of a better word, the central bank is, how uncorrupt they are how independent they are, and so forth. We need to control for these different factors, how good the bank is, how much money is available, how good banks are, in order to really hone in on the way that dollars or rubles or pesos are flowing out of the central bank into company coffers and sending paper in the opposite direction toward the central bank balance sheet. Each country has a different relationship vis-a-vis -vis this type of central bank financing and this type of investment. In the infographic you see in front of you, we label what are known as statistical distributions. These basically tell you how central bank private sector securities purchases translate into investment for different levels of these purchases. For example, in some distributions, central banks make small purchases and they get large returns, but if they keep making big purchases, they don't get any returns, and in another country, the opposite can happen. And that sounds very abstract and very blithe until you actually label and you can see the exact parameters where each central bank is doing this. Then hopefully you can predict how central bank purchases in this way will affect investment in any particular jurisdiction and or year. Turning our attention to the role of central bank purchases of private securities, we see that central banks themselves could easily be some of the largest funders in their economies. And thus, there's a very clear role for central bankers as funders, even if not as funders of last resort, but as funders overall. The figure we see in front of us looks at central bank assets in various countries, these assets can easily exceed 20, 40, even half of GDP in some jurisdictions. Central Bank of Bhutan's assets exceed roughly 50% of GDP, assuming these data are correct. We've seen huge increases in the value of these assets in Japan and the US, though we've even seen relatively large central bank holdings in places like the Ukraine, Azerbaijan, and Turkey, suggesting not only the importance of central bank funding to private sector companies outside of monetary transmission mechanisms. Continuing on this theme of the central bank as a main funder in its own right, figure 9 shows us the private asset purchases of these central banks as a share of investment in many economies. This percent is very large in places like the US where emergency measures were undertaken, in Japan, interestingly in Eritrea, Armenia, uh, Central African Republic. In many countries, they're much smaller, and to some extent our paper asks, well, would companies in places like Bangladesh, Nicaragua, Macedonia benefit if these central banks were to actually purchase more private sector securities? One of the main objections to central bank finance in general has been its effect on inflation. 
If central bank prints money and output grows, you're not getting inflation. In other words, if you have four cars and four dollars, and suddenly you make five cars and five dollars, you haven't initiated any kind of inflationary spiral. One of the other criticisms of this unconventional monetary policy is that central banks could lose a large amount of money, particularly during the unwinding of their asset purchases. And what we see from the initial data is that these central banks have made money in the past, and most economists expect that they will continue to do so in the future. There might be short periods of losses where a central bank has to step in and buy assets whose prices are falling very quickly in order to get these lovely effects of decreasing risk and increasing overall asset prices. But in the longer run, we expect not only private investors to make money, but also these central banks. Without belaboring the point too much, figure 23b also shows that European central banks have made money from supporting crisis economies in the past, and we expect even non-European central banks to similarly profit, assuming rather obviously that they make good investments. If a central bank makes bad investments, then of course all bets are off. Moreover, let us even assume the central bank would incur losses during some kind of stabilization program or even as the result of some program trying to introduce economic growth. If that's the case, figure 31 shows the estimated losses of various shocks to an economy. But what we argue in the paper is that it's far better for the economy overall to socialize those losses rather than to concentrate them on particular companies, especially productive companies, unlike banks that are not in a position to handle very volatile swings in asset prices. Now, what are some of the arguments for a central bank serving a more systemic role as a funder of last resort? As we discuss in our paper, historically, the central bank and the development bank were often fused in the same organization until being split apart under a new wave of thinking in the 20th century. And what we see in figure 27, central banks might still be able to serve this kind of developmental role that they've been stripped from accidentally. The infographic you see in front of you shows the quality of financial sectors around the world. As we see in North America and most of Western Europe, banks work just fine. There's no necessary reason why a central bank needs to start allocating credit to productive companies. In other jurisdictions, such as Russia, China, Saudi Arabia, we see that there is a role for a type of funder of last resort. And unsurprisingly, their central banks and other government agencies already play this role. But in certain jurisdictions, we don't believe they're playing enough of a role as a funder of last resort because it's been taboo for a central bank to provide the kind of resources necessary to fund all the productive investments needed in an economy that banks and other financial institutions just can't fund, that they haven't been allocating enough resources. Now, which countries would be good candidates for this type of funder of, of last resort? 
In the paper, we describe some of the conditions that central bankers and other professional economists argue for such a funder of last resort role. This includes very low inflation, very low growth, very low or zero interest rates, usually high government debt such that governments cannot continue to try and stimulate demand by borrowing. In addition, we talk about the relative level of corruption between the fiscal authorities and the central bank. If the central bank is less corrupt and more competent than fiscal authorities, then it's clearly the central bank that should be providing this kind of funding. Assuming you believe that more independent central banks are less corrupt, more competent, then there might be a role to play for a funder of last resort in places like Romania, Bosnia, Ukraine, Bulgaria, interestingly Greece, and even if you kind of widen your judgment, you might consider central banks in places like Lithuania, Georgia, the Oman, serving this role as a funder of last resort in places where the fiscal authorities are seen as more corrupt and the central bank is seen as more independent and thus hopefully more competent and less corrupt. So what is the result of all this analysis? Figure 10 foreshadows our own results by looking at the variety of asset purchases undertaken by central banks in various jurisdictions. What this author shows is that countries at different income levels chose to purchase different kinds of assets in order to respond to the economic crisis. A one-size-buy-all approach to assets will not work in various jurisdictions. What we don't know is the extent to which buying government versus private assets will help an advanced economy versus a emerging economy, and we don't know the extent to which that reflects necessarily on investment. Figure 45 shows the general relationship between central bank private securities purchases and investment as a percent of GDP for all countries everywhere, and thus to some extent for no country nowhere. On the x-axis, we show the extent of central bank private securities purchases scaled from 0 to 1. We talk as a percent of GDP, but they're scaled, so we're looking at countries that are buying relatively few private securities versus those that are buying a lot of private securities, and we're looking at those effects on investment. For those jurisdictions that are adding some private securities into their central bank's asset portfolios, investments increasing. For central banks that add just a little bit of private securities into their asset portfolios, we see a relatively large impact on investment, and we see this relationship grow steadily over time with bumps along the asset acquisition path. So as a central bank starts to accumulate more and more private sector assets, its impact on investment increases, but one cannot say that this is a linear or clear relationship, not only because we're looking at different countries, but we're looking at these countries over time. 
The main message, though, from this graph roughly shows the overall main message from our analysis as central banks purchase more private sector assets and serve as a funder of last resort that this helps to promote investment, except in those sloth cases which we'll talk about a little bit later. Figure 41 shows the same relationship for different geographical regions. There are certain high points for a central bank's acquisition of these private sector assets. Thus, as if to tell the obvious, different regions and different countries will have different reactions to the way their private companies react as central banks start acquiring their securities. Now, it's not necessarily true that once a central bank starts to buy private sector assets, it just goes and goes. A central bank will probably want to diversify the assets it holds on its portfolios and adjust that mix depending on which market it wants to affect in terms of interest rates, returns, changes in prices, profits, and so forth. And we show some of the more pronounced examples of this relationship between the holding of central bank assets in general and the holding of central bank's private sector assets. Particularly for Tajikistan, we see that even though its central bank is not one of the bigger asset holders in the world, it has a relatively large amount of private sector assets relative to some of the other economies such as Angola, Burundi, Macedonia. These economies tend to hold relatively little private sector assets irregardless of the size of their bank balance sheet, which is surprising because as I've just stated, if a central bank works anything like any other investment institution, you would expect and indeed you would want it to have different kinds of assets on its balance sheet, if not for diversification or risk purposes, then even for broader fiscal policy or macroeconomic management reasons. Now, continuing on this theme of central bank private securities purchases as helping investment, the infographic we see in front of us shows the correlation between these purchases and investment. And of course, we've removed the effects of broader monetary policy, because otherwise this correlation wouldn't tell us anything. For some countries such as Bangladesh, Mauritius, Venezuela, Senegal, a lot of African countries on this list, central bank private securities purchases have translated into larger amounts of investment. Different countries over time exhibit different correlations between the way their central bank purchases private assets and the way investment grows in these economies. To take two of the most salient examples from Albania and Bangladesh, even if the change is the same, namely, even if for every 5% increase in a central bank's purchase of private assets, we see a increase in investment, there might be a level effect. In other words, a central bank might be changing not only at the margin, but also in absolute terms, the investment happening in some of these economies. As we were discussing before, we found evidence of a sloth effect. It might be crowding out, and the infographic we see in front of us shows some of the negative correlations between these central bank private security purchases and investments, of course, after controlling for these other variables we talked about. 
Some of the countries with the largest negative correlation include places like Armenia, Tajikistan, Azerbaijan. Figure 29 shows the relationship for a group of countries where there is what we call the sloth effect, namely that when a central bank increases its purchases of private sector assets, investment actually decreases over time. And we simply document this phenomenon without actually commenting very much on it. Figure 50 shows what we label the true effect of central bank private asset purchases on investment. These estimates differ from the simple correlation analysis we provided earlier because a correlation is just one time. You get uh, 20 numbers, you decide on a correlation coefficient, and that's it you might have gotten 20 other numbers in a different state of the world. But in this figure 50, we try and simulate all states of the world for which those data probably came from. It's really only Panama. There is an effect greater than one, namely that a central bank purchase of private securities will have a more than proportional effect on investment. We do see positive effects and the blue bars we see in front of us show the 95% confidence interval of that effect in each of these jurisdictions. For the bottom part of this infographic, we see a fair amount of these countries having no discernible effect, namely the effect passes through zero, though in some cases there is a clear sloth effect in places such as Nicaragua, Georgia, Philippines. Again, we highlight Tajikistan. There are places where uh, central bank purchases of private securities have probably done more harm than good. Figure 51 shows what engineers call a transfer function. This transfer function look at the way central bank purchases bounce through an economy over time. Or imagine these purchases get sent into a black box and then get sent out as investment. But remember that unlike some of the examples we were showing you earlier called vector autoregressions, we're not just doing this one time. We're not just sending one pulse through and looking at the results. Instead, in this transfer function, approach, we keep sending these private security purchases just as they've done in the past and looking at the aggregate effect over time. There are relatively strong initial effects shortly after these purchases, though the purchases also have an impact up to a decade later probably reflecting the time needed to bring large highly profitable investment projects to fruition. Now, of course, this leads us to the obvious question. If buying private sector securities is such a good thing, how do we do it? How do we put it into our law? Why don't central bank laws contain provisions for such purchases in the first place? And as we've mentioned in the past, it's partly because of conventional economic theory, which is focused on price stability, particularly after World War II. But there are other reasons which we absolutely don't have time to go into now. A recent IMF study, maybe only 20% of the central bank law focused only on price stability. A large number of these central bank laws looked at growth as a subsidiary objective to maintaining price stability, and in a relatively small proportion of economies, growth as an 
equal mandate to providing price stability. In easily more than half of the central bank laws, a highlighted objective to promote economic growth without necessarily the ability to actually reach into markets and get that growth for themselves. Looking at our own random sample of these central bank laws, we have sorted them into six categories, as you see in front of you. Rating one countries are basically the most antagonistic toward a central bank buying private sector securities, and we see a rating of six as the central bank's laws being extremely friendly toward the purchase of these private sector securities. Unsurprisingly, we see that most of the central bank laws covered in our review have a mode of two, namely that promoting investment is not an objective in the central bank law, and private purchases are ambiguous in the central bank law. In many laws, they provide some kind of monetary board or the government the discretion to conduct these purchases if necessary, but don't really go into it more than that. In figure 57, we look at different legal provisions from the countries we selected at random, and we look at the extent to which the central bank has rules as a lender of last resort, thus as a potential legal basis for serving as a funder of last resort, specific authorization for the collection of private collateral, and whether the central bank is nominally independent or not. Only about 25% of these central banks have a legal basis for using private securities purchases as a last resort. Even if the central bank wanted to support the economy, and even if it was vital that the central bank went in and bought some company stocks, bonds, asset-backed securities, and so forth, either A, they wouldn't be allowed to, or B, it would create such a controversy that their central bank management would probably not want to do this anyway. Thus, uh, central bank laws could usefully be changed. In our paper, we specifically argue for a nominal GDP target as a primary objective for central bank law. The reason why we do this, not only because it's become very popular amongst economists in recent years, but also that it provides the flexibility to central bankers not only to focus on price stability, but also to provide the legal basis for having a mandate to buy the securities that the central bank thinks it needs in order to help protect output along with the other branches of government. The following infographics show some of the options that are available to lawmakers from the countries that we've reviewed at random. The first option, the one that we prefer, is direct application of a nominal GDP target. Namely, instead of having seven or eight objectives, as is often the case in these central bank laws, that they would have a clear nominal GDP role, of course, any other ancillary roles such as supervising a banking sector, if they should at all, but that's a completely different subject. And so the second approach then is through government policy. As we've seen in several of these central bank laws, the central bank receives its objectives and main policy directions not necessarily from its central bank objectives, as enshrined in law, but from government policy itself. So 
So an easy fix could simply be that the executive or even the parliament decides specifically on either a decree in the case of the executive or some kind of parliamentary instrument in order to fix nominal GDP target, either annually or as needed. The third method of legislating a nominal GDP target might be then to define already existing objectives. As we saw in most of these laws, they list several, sometimes eight, nine different objectives, most of which contain elements of a nominal GDP targeting, some even as broad as promoting national development and harmony. So to the extent that this abstract wording is then made more specific, specifically to discuss GDP and inflation, either in the short run or longer run, and also to specifically include holdings of things like private sector securities, that would probably make monetary policy clearer than simply saying, well, it's up to the monetary executive committee to decide. The fourth way is to put these functions in a section dealing with a lender of last resort or stabilization. For a few of the central bank laws that we looked at, there's a specific chapter dealing with the central bank as a lender of last resort and or rules during stabilization during a financial crisis. There could easily be put in provisions allowing for the purchase of private sector securities explicitly and perhaps perhaps even defining more clearly these broader objectives about promoting economic growth while keeping inflation down. Of course, you want higher level targets at a higher level in the law, therefore putting these kinds of objectives way down in chapters dealing with contingencies is probably less preferred. A fifth way of dealing with lender of last resort functions, and particularly nominal GDP targeting, deals with monetary unions. In two of the monetary unions we dealt with, the monetary union does have the explicit mandate to invest in developmental projects. This can become a very political process in which none of the governing treaties or instruments establishing these monetary unions decide exactly who gets what, when, where, and why. So one way of making this law clearer and more accountable is then to decide on objectives for the monetary union, which of course there are problems with as we saw in the EU, but nonetheless the EU is easily the most advanced of the monetary unions, certainly that we looked at in our study as a potential role model for making law that is fair to the various jurisdictions involved. The final approach to legislating a nominal GDP target might be in the way the central bank deals with national development banks. As we mentioned before, the central bank and the national development bank were often together and only separated over time. One method of dealing with nominal GDP targeting would be to give the central bank the authority to buy these private sector securities, but then offload them to a national development bank that could oversee, if not custody, certainly more active management in some of these companies to the extent that that might increase the 
returns on these investments. Thus, to conclude, it seems that there's a limited role for central banks to purchase private sector securities as a way of promoting investment, particularly under well-defined circumstances when other types of monetary policy have not worked. We have found that there are better ways and worse ways of legislating or writing central bank laws in a way which allows central banks to deal with not only economic crises, but deal with the challenges of promoting investment in this way. And we've considered drafting strategies not only for legislators, but the economists that advise them. This has been another Infographic Instant with Brian Michael.